We're about to read the Bible now. We believe the Bible is the Word of God, and God speaks. It's living and active. And so that's why we walk through the Bible, and the Bible is the center of what we do here at City Light, because our Creator is speaking to us. And so we are in the book of James, as I said. We're in chapter 2, working through this, and we are looking at sentences 14 through to 26. They're in the screen behind me. If you have a phone, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to get it out. Read along with us. Um, and so it helps you engage more. So uh, James two fourteen through to 26, and it says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them, any, uh, without giving them the things they need for their body, what good is that? So also, uh, so also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by, by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that a faith apart from your works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and his faith was completed by his works, and that scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and that it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the Word of God. Well, good afternoon and welcome. I'm Jeremy, I'm one of the leaders. And uh, it's my privilege to be able to speak to you from James chapter 2. And even, I was just reflecting on this this afternoon, we were praying this afternoon for um, the church in North Korea, and to be able to gather like this is not a privilege that Christians enjoy openly and freely across the world. So again, I'd encourage you, like I was saying, to make the most of this time this afternoon, as we hear God's word, as we sing and pray together, as we encourage one another, as we see the day drawing near. So make the most of this afternoon in that way. And it is so encouraging to hear from one another, and from people like Brendan and Jade, I remember we did marriage prep with them, and I remember them saying during that that they wanted their marriage to really be about uh, living out things for, for God's kingdom. And I was saying to a couple, there's a couple studying marriage prep with us this week, I was like, no pressure, but a few of the graduates have uh, invented a toilet and started a whole sanitation network in another country, but uh, you know, no pressure at all. But um, it's so encouraging to hear from them and to, be, and to encourage one another to live this out. And it's very apt given what we're looking at this afternoon in James chapter 2. You have spoke before saying this really is, is probably the central passage in the book of James. If you're summing up what this book is about, it really comes down to this section where he's saying that to be a person of faith, to follow Jesus, to say, I believe in Jesus, must result in action. It must result in action. Years ago, 2013 actually, when the first year of City Light, I was working part-time as a teacher and working part-time here, and I was teaching religious ed in just a, in a state high school. And I was teaching a lesson on, on the idea of, like, of um, you know, science and religion and the, idea, the basic principle that actually every, pretty much every truth statement you make involves some amount of faith. You can't incontrovertibly prove just about anything. In fact, we were talking about that, that Rene Descartes phrase, I think, therefore I am. His thought experiment was to say, 
what, what, is, what are the things that I actually can prove without any need for sort of faith? And he came down to one statement. He said, if I, if I think, I know that I'm, I exist, and that's a, an axiomatic statement. I, I, it, it is actually incontrovertible. I remember saying to the kids, pretty much anything else you say just assumes some things. Even the fact that you are the same person you were yesterday assumes that your mind is reliable, which is something you can't actually prove. And so I showed them a clip from The Matrix where it was clear that actually the people there were being deceived, that their minds were being tricked, all this kind of stuff. And while I was just kind of riffing philosophical on all this, one of the kids just went, whoa, that's so scary. And I had this sudden moment where I was like, I might have just ruined his life. Maybe he's going to go home and have an existential crisis. And his parents are going to be like, why aren't you doing your homework? And he's like, do I even exist? Like, what's even real? Are you even here? Are you my mom? Like, anyway, he was fine. He was back the next week and it was all okay. But I had a sudden freak out moment where I'd scrambled him. But the, um, it is the case, though, that it's a frightening thought that you could actually be deceiving yourself. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, madmen don't know they're mad. The idea that what makes a person crazy is that they think they're acting perfectly sane. And it's kind of frightening that you could be that deceived. James is writing about something equally frightening. He's saying it's actually possible to claim that you're a follower of Jesus, to say, I have faith in Jesus, and to actually not really have a relationship with God. To think that you've been saved, forgiven, set free, spared the wrath of God, only to find out on the last day that you never were. He says it's possible to say those words, I have faith in Jesus, and for you to be an enemy of the cross. It's serious. And this is not meant to be a scare. What he's saying is meant to be grace. He cares so much about this church that he doesn't want them to arrive on that last day and be surprised by it. He wants them to know right now, do you have real faith in Jesus? Do you know what that means? And he's saying if you have real faith, it should be resulting in action. It should be visible. If, if Christianity were to become illegal, there should be enough evidence that for you to be convicted based on your behavior. And so he wants these people, the church, and us today to have a deep assurance. Not a casual assurance where we just simply assume that we're saved because we like going to church or we like Christian people. But where we know what it means to say, I have faith in Jesus. And to know that you really do know him. That you really are saved. And so I'm going to pray that that would be the case this afternoon. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are a God of grace and mercy and kindness and goodness. That you don't leave us to guess as to what your will is or who you are or what you are like. You reveal yourself through your word and by your spirit. And so we pray as we open your word in James 2 this afternoon, you would show us who you are. That you would cut to the heart. That you would reveal our hearts and intentions. And that you would show us what it means to be a follower of you, what it means to say, I have faith in Jesus and to be able to say it truly. And Father, we pray all of this for the glory of your name. Amen. This whole section that we're looking at from 14 to 26 is driven by a single question right at the beginning, and it's this. James 2.14, as we read out just before, James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that, and this is the question, can that faith save him? The central question of this passage is not, and we've got to get this clear, the question is not, how does someone get saved? A letter like the the letter to the Galatians is specifically about that question. 
in that letter, Paul is, is wrestling with a question that seems to be coming up in the church. Do you need faith in Jesus to be saved, or can you save yourself by your own good works? And the emphatic answer is no, you cannot save yourself by your own good works. It's only through faith in Jesus. But that's not the question that this text is wrestling with. James simply assumes that and takes that for granted, that faith in Jesus is how you get saved. The question he's asking is, how do you know you have genuine faith? How do you know you really have this faith that saves and saves completely? Because he says there is a type of faith that claims to be real and yet is counterfeit. And so as to not leave us in the world of ideas, he gets really practical about it and gives an example straight away. In James 2, 15 to 17, look what he writes. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He gives an example. He says, look, say you're in church, you meet a Christian brother or sister, and you know that they have a need, and you say, I want you to be warm and be filled, and you have all the resources to make that happen, and you don't do it. He would say, that's a mismatch. What you say and what you do aren't connecting. If you were to really say that and really mean it, you would, of course, meet the need. That would be the natural way that that statement would work out in action. And he's saying in the same way, faith should result in works. It's not a sentiment. If it's a, if it's a statement about reality, it should result in works. What he's saying is what he's working against is kind of thoughts and prayers Christianity. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Lord of the Rings or read the books. You may have heard of it, little known thing, bit niche. But in one of the, in one of the I don't even know which one it is, but anyway, in one of them, Aragorn, king of Gondor, needs help because Mordor is going to just ruin everything. Again, like it's been a while, but track with me, you know the story maybe. And he goes to Theoden, king of Rohan, who has soldiers, right? He, he has reinforcements that they actually need, and they kind of, it, he sort of owes it to him. And when he goes there, if you know the story, you'll know that Theoden doesn't actually offer any help at all. And to sort of kind of give a, a modern example of it, as someone's done up this little meme, which is of him going and asking for help, and Theoden saying, my thoughts and prayers are with Gondor, sending positive energy their way. And then the extra one, Theoden has added a temporary profile picture. That's the, that's the symbol of Gondor right there. And it's mocking the idea that if you were to say to someone, oh, I feel really bad for you, I'd love to help, and you actually have the resources to do it, then do it. The idea that we'd just be thoughts and prayers type people is, is inconsistent, even hypocritical. And in the same way, he's saying faith and works go together. If you say, I believe Jesus is king, then there should be actions that correspond with that statement. It's not just ascending to an idea or some doctrines about Jesus. It's a statement about realities, about what you really believe to be true, and it should result in action. And you might say, well, look, I, you know, it's kind of, there are different personalities. Some people are really kind of ideas-based. They love theories, concepts, theology. Other people are more sort of pragmatic. They just like to do things. It's kind of more of like a love languages thing. I'm more of a kind of a, a words, thoughts person. Other people are more practical. James says, no, that's not the case. Look what he says. He even anticipates that argument. In James 2, 18 and 19, he says, But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by, your, by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even demons believe and shudder. 
James says some people say, well, look, I'm more of a thinker than a doer. He says that's not what it means to have faith in Jesus. This isn't one of those things. He says, no. Faith without deeds, he even says, is demonic. He says, you know what? There is a lot of perfect theology in hell. There are demons who can articulate perfect doctrine. The problem is not that they don't believe that that's true. The problem is that they don't obey. It doesn't result in any works. There is no action. He says, if you believe that God is one great, even demons believe that. To follow Jesus, to say, I have faith in Jesus, is not about saying some platitudes. It results in action. And he's saying, to say that I have faith in Jesus, and it doesn't correspond to any kind of action or works, he's saying, you're not really using the term correctly. You might have heard parents complain sometimes that when they hear people who don't have kids talk about being tired, that they're like, you keep using that word, but you don't know what it means. <laughs> Until you start your day at 2 a.m. one day, you just don't understand what's... You know, and there's all that kind of self-righteous banter that goes with that and whatnot. But, um, but you get the idea, right? It's kind of getting at the idea of like, if you really understand that word, then use it properly. James is saying, if you say, I have faith in Jesus, it's not just something you say. It's not a bumper sticker. It should transform your life completely. And that's why he goes on to say this. James 2.20 do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and that faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. He gives two examples from the Old Testament. And he's speaking to churches that would have had a lot of Jewish people in them, so they're familiar with these stories. And the first one he picks is kind of like team captain, Abraham. Anyone who is Jewish who's kind of worth their salt, they, they know about Abraham. And he says to them, consider his example. He even quotes the scripture. Abraham believed God. He had faith in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That means that Abraham was right before God, not because he lived a perfect life, but because he believed in God, that God would deal with his sin, that God would accept him. But he says, but along with that, he did things that corresponded with that, that showed that he really trusted God, that he really had faith in God. God told him to take his son up a mountain, and he did it. He's saying his faith was demonstrated to be real by how he acted. And then he chooses an example that probably none of them would have seen coming. He chooses a story from when Israel were entering the promised land and they come to a military outpost called Jericho and they send some spies through to kind of check out the city. And when they get there, they're in trouble of being found out and a woman called Rahab believes their story that they are sent from God and hides them so that they can actually escape. She believes God and shows it through action. James gives two examples of people who've, who've believed God and showed it through action. Whether the powerful like Abraham or the marginalized like Rahab, it says great or small, all who have faith in God will demonstrate it through action. But some have come to suppose that what James has written here is a bit, a bit of a kind of a jarring disconnection with the rest of the New Testament. We hear so much about grace. It's by grace, not works, over and over again, that some have supposed that this passage actually shows that Paul... Another writer of the New Testament and James did not get on. 
In fact, look at two verses next to each other, one by Paul and one by James from this section. In Galatians, Paul writes, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then we read from James, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so some have supposed, well, were these guys in, in complete disagreement? Galatians was one of the earliest letters written. Maybe this is James kind of coming in over the top to sort of correct him, give him a bit of a noogie and say, that's not how you do it. Actually, you're justified by works. Was it that they had a major clash? We know from the book of Acts that there was a, there was a disagreement around non-Jews who were getting saved and what that meant for them and all of this. Maybe this kind of blew up. But I'll put to you that there's not really a contradiction here. And that while they use similar language, it's perfectly fine to use it in different ways. And not only that, but it's quite obvious that the letter to the Galatians and the letter of James are answering different questions. In the letter of Galatians, Paul is answering the question, how can you get right with God? And some have come into the church saying, actually, yeah, it's that faith stuff and whatever, but really, you need to do things in order to be right with God. And Paul is trying to make clear that is absolutely not the case. It's by faith in Christ only. There is nothing you can do to earn your way to God. But James is asking the question, how do you know if you have real faith? And so he's emphasizing the way that you know you have real faith is you'll see it through your actions. And not only that, but Paul and the rest of the New Testament is clear that even though we are justified by faith alone, faith is never alone. That when God transforms you, when he grants you faith in Jesus, it transforms the rest of your life. There's a pattern of change. Look at what he says in Romans 6.1. And this is Paul writing. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul affirms. It is by grace alone. We cannot earn our way back to God. But once God has saved you, he will transform your life. And not only that, but looking in the book of James, you see that he affirms that salvation is by grace. In James 1.18, it says, Of his own will, talking about God, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It was God who initiated salvation, not us. He even goes on to say, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold out the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He affirms that it's by faith in Jesus Christ that you'll be saved. Not only that, but the, even, the question that drives this passage is, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He assumes that it's by faith that we are saved. Otherwise, why would he keep talking about it? So then you might say, well, what point is he making? When James 2.22, right in the center of this passage, he writes, you see that faith was active along with his works and that faith was completed by his works. He's saying, when you believe in God, you are justified by grace. But you'll be able to see that belief in real life. You'll be able to see it transform your life. It will change how you act. He's saying there is a type of faith that does not save, a faith that simply says things about God. But there is a type of faith that saves, and it's a faith in God. The easiest way to explain it is probably like this. In the 19th century, a guy called Charles Blondin who was kind of early in the game when it comes to extreme sports, decided that he was going to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. You might have heard it or you know, seen sort of illustrations of it or anything, any of that kind of thing. But um, he, he kind of did it once, and obviously the thrill of that wasn't enough, so he did it again and again, and then with more and more sort of just novelty implements, putting stuff on his head, wheelbarrows, all this kind of stuff. But he tells the story of one time 
of crossing it with a wheelbarrow to, you know, to uproarious sort of applause and then saying to the crowd, who reckons I could actually take someone across this tightrope in this wheelbarrow? And everyone's like, yes, you could 100% do that. And he's like, any volunteers? And in his re- recounting of the story, there was not a single volunteer. This is the difference between faith that and faith in. Faith in Jesus is not faith that he could save or that he is the Lord. There are some things that are true about him. It's faith in him that would entrust your life to him. Just like with Blondin, they all believed that, yeah, I believe you could do that, but not enough that I would actually risk my own life. To have faith in Jesus means you would give it all to him. That you would be 100% in. Like Graham Edwards spoke to us about being all the way in. We would say, you are worthy of my whole life. I trust you with my life. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus. To say, your ways are higher than my ways. You are wiser than I am. And that doesn't mean that we always act consistently with that. But there is a pattern that would demonstrate that I trust Jesus. James is saying, that's real faith. That's real faith. You might say, look, after all of this, well, what's the difference then? Like Christians talk to their blue in the face about all this grace, grace, grace stuff. But again, it just comes down to what you do, right? Well, I would say the difference is cosmic. If you believe that what will make you right with God is your behavior, that if you act in a certain way, you will be admitted, given a ticket to the pearly gates of heaven, then your motivation to obey is 100% fear. I have to do these things or I won't get the stuff that I want to get in the end. But the gospel is no one can do enough. And the only possible motivation now to follow Jesus is for the sheer joy of it. To be like, I trust you completely with my life. And this is exactly what James said. Do you remember back to week one, if you're with us, in James 1.25, what did he say about being doers of the word? Look what he writes. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He's saying to live out your faith is not a curse. It's not that you have to follow Jesus. It's that you get to follow Jesus. It's the blessing and the privilege of it. It's for our good and for our joy and for His glory. Who more would you want to live for than the God of the universe who knows all things, has all power, the one before whom all will bow their knee, and yet He died for you and bled out for you that you might be saved? Who better to give your life to? It's that we get to. It would be kind of like, imagine winding back a few years to when myself, Mel and I were getting married. And imagine someone was speaking to us who just knew nothing about marriage. And if they said to me, so you mean when you get married, you're going to have to spend all your time together? You'd imagine that a natural and normal reply would be, no, no, you're missing the point. The reason we're doing this is because we want to. I mean, that's the whole kind of point, that we actually want to spend that time together. In the same way, James is saying, look, Real faith, when you understand who Jesus really is, it's that you get to follow him, not that you have to follow him. And so with this, I guess there are really two applications. And the first one is this. There is a warning in this passage that faith and works go together. That if you're a follower of Jesus, there needs to be evidence that you are a follower of Jesus. That if you have faith in Christ, there should be evidence that it's real faith. We are saved by faith in Jesus, not works. But our works will show whether or not our faith is in Jesus. Let me just say that again to get it clear. We are saved by faith in Jesus, not works. 
But our works will show whether or not our faith is in Jesus. That's what James is saying here. If your faith in Jesus is not resulting in action, the caution is that you may not have genuine faith in him. That's a stark warning, but a loving one. It's better to find out now while there's still time to repent than to get there on that last day, having thought your whole life that you're a follower of Jesus, only to hear those terrible words from his mouth, away from me, I never knew you. Jesus even says, on that day, there'll be some who perform miracles in my name, and when they get there, I will say to them, I never knew you. John Piper writes this on assurance. He says, there is a kind of cavalier attitude toward our security today. There is, a, there is little trembling, little vigilance and earnestness and caution and watchfulness over our souls. There is a kind of casual, slack, careless attitude toward the possibility that we might make shipwreck of our faith and fail to lay hold of eternal life. We have the notion that our security is a kind of mechanical, automatic thing. We prayed once to receive Jesus. We are safe and there's no place for working out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not helpful for me in teaching this word to give you casual assurances. You have to open the scriptures for yourself and to weigh up, does, does what I see in scripture match up with my life? Does what scripture says about how a Christian struggles with sin and is imperfect match up with what I see in scripture? Do I see evidence of what James is talking about, of real faith in Jesus, because it matters? James is calling you to assess this because what's at stake really matters. And the problem is you might say, well, how, like, how do I know? How much works is enough? Whatever it is. Let me give you just maybe one helpful diagnostic question. When is it that you feel most free? When you're following Jesus or when you're rebelling against him? If when you feel most free is when you're following full-heartedly Jesus and when you sin is when you feel like that is not my true self, that's a good sign that the Spirit is at work in your heart, that you desire to follow him. But if it's the case that when you're in sin, it either feels nothing or even that's when you feel most free, that's not a good indication of genuine faith in Christ. James is cautioning you to ask the question, do you have real faith in Jesus? It matters. If you, are, if you do look at your life and you see a genuine desire to follow Jesus and to live for him, there's a love for him, then James is saying, then get doing because it's a blessing. He says, if you are not just a hearer of the word but a doer, you'll be blessed in the doing. I think it's the case that we, maybe particularly in our context, in Sydney 2019, we are well practiced at hearing lots and lots of things and doing nothing. We, we consume so much media that oftentimes we feel like the main point of consuming something is just to feel something and then that's it. Like you watch a TV series and a major character in that series goes through some kind of trauma, then resolves it. And then at the end of the episode, you kind of feel like you've resolved something, but you switch the TV off and you realize you've resolved nothing. Life is exactly the same as it was six hours ago before you started binge watching. And we watch things because it's cathartic. And oftentimes, you can come week in and week out to a gathering, to missional communities, and hear the Word of God, feel really convicted about it. And that almost feels like the main point. We listen to sermons, and we're like, yeah, I'd love to listen to another sermon. James is saying, just chill for a bit. Go and do something first. We're called to do. Real faith acts. I love this phrase. Gav picked up on one of his, he was working as a landscape gardener um, right out of high school. And one of, the, one of the phrases on site was, like, too much yap yap, not enough tap tap. 
And it's a great phrase. In fact, for anyone who's into graphs, I've graphed it for you as to how James would sort of put it. If you have on the x-axis tap, 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 and on the y-axis yap, yap, you've got tap dancers down one extreme who could do with less tap, tap, and chihuahuas with too much. But unfortunately, in our context, Christians are just below that. Too much talk, not enough action. I think if James were speaking to the modern church, and he is, he would say, it's time to get doing. We talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Do something. So I'd encourage you, do something. If you feel convicted or have for a while that you need to be a better steward of your finances for the sake of the kingdom, don't just talk about it in group. Before the sun goes down today, do something. Don't even read another book about it. You know enough. Just do something. If you're not reading or praying, and every time your DNA groups, you get, everyone asks, how are you doing? Oh, I'm not reading the Bible. Just do something. Get up tomorrow morning, set the alarm, get up and be in God's Word and meet with Him in His Word and in prayer. If you're too busy and you know you're too busy, do something about it. Speak to your boss. Say no. Start looking for a new job. Do something about it. If you're caught in sin or in sexual sin, do something about it. Throw out your phone or your computer. Call that person and say, we're not doing this anymore. Real faith results in action. If you're not serving your family like you should and you've felt convicted about it for a long time, then do something about it. If you haven't told anyone about Jesus or shared the gospel with anyone and it's been on your heart to do it, just do something. It is the case that we talk too much and do too little and we miss out on it. It's not that James is trying to give us a head kicking here. Here he's, just, he's encouraging, he's saying, you're missing out on the blessing. He says, those who hear the word and who do it, they'll be blessed in the doing. It's a blessing. And that's what we miss out on. And we need each other to encourage one another in this because we will either encourage one another in the culture of too much yap yap and not enough tap tap or we will encourage one another to be doers of the word. And so to finish today, we'll do something slightly different. It's still talking a bit, but whatever. But we're going we're gonna to interview someone uh, here who's, who's with us at the 11 a.m. service who actually took that word seriously with a group of other people and did something last year. So we're going to hear a little bit about that. Could you please make Sarah feel welcome as she comes up to the front? <clears throat> All right. Oh, now, which mic am I meant to be getting here, Stephen? This one? Okay. All right. Gav's microphone. Okay, don't worry about that one, guys, please. Where is Gav's microphone? Beautiful. Really should have teed this up before I got out, but we're all enjoying this, right? Thanks, Sarah. Um, for those who, who don't know you here, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your name, what you do during the week, all that sort of thing? Sure. So I'm Sarah. Um, haven't met most of you because I'm at the 11 a.m. service. And I moved to Sydney from Coffs Harbour at the start of the year and am working in a law firm in the city. Hmm. Now, last year, your, your MC leader, Leah, actually dubbed you in for this. But um, she said last year, you and a bunch of others at your church in Coffs. Um, yeah, decided to do something pretty significant. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so a group of us decided to do um, what's called the Radical Challenge. Um, you may have heard about um, David Platt. He's written a book called Radical, and basically it's about um, what would it look like for us Western Christians to actually, I guess, take things in the gospel seriously and give our whole lives to it rather than pursue things like wealth, career, 
like house, family, that sort of thing um, that our culture like by default goes for. And um, so the challenge was to take a year of our lives out just to um, put that into practice um, by following a five-step challenge of reading the Bible in a year, um, praying for the world, um, giving sacrificially, commit to a church or Bible study and um, spend 2% of your time in a foreign context. Mm. That's a, like a fair sort of challenge, the kind of ones that people like get really G'd up about and then <laughs> not much happens a month later. How did it go over the year? Yeah, so it was quite daunting at first, so we gave it a lot of thought before doing the challenge. Um, but the key to it was the accountability we had from each other in the group. So we would uh, meet every Sunday to check how we're going with our Bible reading and pray for the world. Someone would pick a country and share and we'd pray. Um, we'd organise fundraisers throughout the year like um, to, to give to different causes that came up. And um, yeah, it, was, it really drew us closer as a group um, because we were in it together. It was hard. Um, we did a mission trip to India, which um, that's like the last place I ever wanted to go, um, and um, t- as well as some others, and it was quite daunting. And um, But um, God just like gave us strength that we didn't have, gave us, um, yeah, just it was such a blessing in the end. Um, but yeah, we couldn't have done it without each other. Mm, that's awesome. And the, like kind of a year on from it now, what are your reflections on it looking back? Yeah, so it was the best year of my whole life um, and it grew me a lot in um, looking outwardly rather than inwardly um, and, yeah, it changed my heart in that way. So um, even though the year's finished, um, it's something that, like, has created new habits to continue and um, given me a different focus on, um, like, for example, what I want to do rather than what I want. It's like, well, what does God want me to do and... Um, yeah, it, it sort of just changed the way I thought about things. Mm, that's so cool. Thank you so much for coming to you just to share that as well. Can we just thank Sarah for sharing that? Thanks, Dan. Um, and isn't it as encouraging to hear from the church when people are living out their faith? So this is what I encourage you to do this week, to think and pray on these things. And if you do something... I know it's kind of the, you feel funny about it because you don't want to act like you're bragging or whatever, but to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ, share it with your MC, maybe share it with the group, that we might spur one another on to love and good deeds. I'm going to pray for us that that would be the case. Father, we pray that by your Spirit, as we hear your word, you would convict us that we are blessed when we do, that you command us to do things, not as a cruel taskmaster, but because you love us, And you know what is best for us. And you know that we'll be blessed in the doing. So, Father, we pray that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers. That we would encourage one another to live out our faith in Christ. To see it transform all of our lives, knowing that you are good. And that you bring healing and restoration and wholeness to life. And so, Father, we pray that we wouldn't be afraid of the implications. But that we would do this boldly, knowing that you're a good and gracious God. And, Father, we pray all of this for the glory of your name. Amen. We're going to reflect on these things and reflect on what it is that God might be convicting you of. And then after that, we're going to have a chance to do something to respond in song and to declare the truths of God together. So take a moment to reflect now.